I'm Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism here in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. So before we jump in, and I'm really excited this week, uh, we do need to just say we are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. The ideas we discuss in our podcast don't constitute medical advice. There aren't any state or federal authorities that license herbalists in the United States. Our discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things we're talking about may or may not directly apply to you, but they will give you some information to think about and to guide a little further research. We want to remind you that your good health is your own personal responsibility. So the final decision in considering any course of therapy, whether you heard it on the internet or it was prescribed by your physician, is always yours. So take an active role in your health. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, now that that's done. Yeah. A great way to take an active role in your health is to get educated. A great way to get educated is to read some books. How about our book? How about our book? Yes. (laughs) This was such an exciting week for our book. So um, first off, some of our Irby friends are sending in endorsements, and that's really gratifying, and we feel so excited and grateful to our our friends for the things that they've been saying. Mm -hmm. And also, we had a photo shoot done, um, which uh, was fun, even though I hate having my picture taken, (laughs) but we needed a new headshot of both of us for the About the Author page. Um, so, uh, that is finished Mm. and getting edited right now. And, um, the most exciting thing is that the proof copy of the book arrived. So they're still doing some last edits and there's some things that still have to go in like our picture. Um, but it is so exciting to see the book and have it be really real on paper in my hands. It's so exciting. Look, here it is. <laughs> can you see this? You got here. Wait, here. You can. Uh... <laughs> That's what it sounds like. That's what our book sounds like. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. I showed it to our downstairs neighbors, and they don't know anything about herbs. Um, in fact, uh, the downstairs, the wife is a surgeon, and the husband is an economics professor. And they were really excited, and um, the husband was saying, wow, you guys, I could just take this book and go to an herb shop, and I could just get started right now. And I was like, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> he was totally ready to get in the car and go. He just he just kept turning pages, and he was like, wait, that doesn't look very hard. I could do that. And Which is exactly what we were hoping for. Yeah, yeah, that's what we want people to say. So anyway, we were really excited. We were like, especially having somebody see it who really doesn't know anything about plants or herbs or um, even like holistic health at all. And to have them get excited about it and feel like this was something accessible to them. That's the way that herbalism is supposed to be. It's it's the people's medicine. Yeah. So uh, check it out. You can go in... Uh... Just to go over to Amazon and uh, pop in the search uh, herbalism or herbal medicine for beginners by Katya Swift and Rin Madura, and that will pop right up for you. You can pre-order it today, and uh, I believe they're gonna they're gonna start mailing them out in the middle of May. Yeah, May fifteenth. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. Cool. All right then. So, what do you want to talk about this week? 
my braces. Oh, the braces. Oh, the braces. This has been a tough couple of days, you guys. <laughs> so, y- you might or might not know that I have braces. I'm 44 years old and I have braces. Um, it's actually pretty awesome. I So, my daughter was getting braces and um, she had, her canines were coming in kind of sideways and I have had very crooked teeth, but, uh, you know, I was kind of raised with that idea that like, well, braces are just vanity and your teeth work just fine and you don't need that. And, um, and it's funny how much that idea still really stuck with me. But while my daughter was having hers done, um, and of course, you know, being a health nerd, I, um, I, ask 10 million questions. And fortunately, um, we go to Harvard Orthodontic School to have the work done. And um, since it's a teaching environment, um, nobody seems to mind that I want to learn everything possible about orthodontics in the process. And so the, um, the resident and also the attending orthodontists are just they're really fantastic, and they're also really indulgent of me asking a million questions, which actually that's not even indulgent. Like, any time that you're working with any kind of medical practitioner, you should be asking 10 million questions because it's your body. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so so this all started because um, the orthodontist said, you know, uh, I don't know. She said something. She said something about sleep apnea. And I was like, wait a minute, I I don't have sleep apnea. I mean, I sleep poorly, but I, I don't have sleep apnea because my dear, wonderful husband always asserted that I never snore. And it was very lovely of him. But when I came home and I was mentioning this and, and he was like, oh, I was, but I was like, but I don't have sleep apnea. I mean, I sleep for, I, I don't sleep well, but I don't have sleep apnea. And he's like, well, actually... Um, it's time to come clean. <laughs> I mean, you know, occasionally you would have a little a little snuffling going on there. You know, a little, my, a little snark here and there. My good husband. That might happen. But it was never a problem or anything. It wasn't like noisy. <laughs> it wasn't like rude. Plus I can I can sleep pretty well, so once I decide to go to bed then I'm I'm pretty much out, so that wasn't a problem. Well, anyway, it was very interesting. And then she had some other things to say about uh, other structural things. And she was like, you know, we can fix that. And that was very intriguing to me. And the whole thing became like this interesting experiment. And I really see it like having a chiropractor for your skull and um, your jaw. And uh, the work that they're doing is amazing. And really within like the first six weeks, the sleep apnea was gone. Um, and all the other targets that they've been working on, improving the drainage from my ears because my jaw wasn't in its position properly. And so my ears weren't draining right. And that's a big part of the reason that I'm so prone to ear infections. I was just wondering, I don't think you've really had one. No, I haven't had a single one this year. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Which, I mean, that used to be through the winter, you'd get four or five. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really is amazing. Um, so... Anyway, so I'm pretty excited about braces in general. In specific, they're not a lot of fun. (laughs) And um, I'm getting kind of close to the end. And so the pain has been a lot less. 
and they just made an adjustment on Wednesday that is super painful and there's a wire stabbing me and I can't seem to get it covered right and it's just I thought I was done with this part and I'm really frustrated and it hurts. Um, so I thought it was the perfect time to tell you about braces and herbal things that you can do either for yourself if you are an adult having braces or for your kiddos if they're going through braces to make this process way more tolerable and way less unpleasant. I mean, it's going to hurt because it's braces and you're moving stuff in your mouth and you're changing your bone structure. And yes, that hurts. Um, but you know, it's worth it. Um, but there's a lot we can do. So I wanted to talk about Metasweet and Goldenrod and Self Heal and a couple of other friends. Um, because, because they really have been completely indispensable in dealing with the, the whole braces issue. So the big, there are two big kinds of pain with braces, in case you haven't ever had them. One is the structural pain, the way that the bones are moving around and that does not feel very pleasant. And the other is um, abrasion and ulcer type pain, like abrasion and wound kind of pain because you have all these metal things in your mouth and even though they try really hard to make them not sharp, um, they're sharp and they jab you. And even when they try really hard not to have them jab you, it still is just a thing that happens. So, um, you end up with a billion cuts on the inside of your mouth and, um, they don't just happen once they keep rewounding and they might rewound every minute because <laughs> every time you move, you might scratch over one of those places or like right now I have a wire that's bent in a hook and in the moment that they bent it it didn't grab any of my cheek but somehow it turned or something and now it's like a little fish hook in my mouth and that's not super fun um so having so for me that is the much less tolerable part of the pain the bone structure pain um is not that bad at least psychologically um, you know, it hurts a lot, but psychologically I feel happy about it because I'm like, oh, my bone structure is changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can make a huge difference in yeah. tolerability of pain. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like, ooh, something's happening. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, it hurts, but it's progress. But this whole, like, jabby, stabby wound pain is just, it's no fun. So Meadowsweet is a really excellent plant for this. Um, and specifically, I mean the flowers made into tea. Meadowsweet is astringent. And that is very helpful because as you wound and rewound the inside of your mouth, it, like you lose structural integrity of those cells. So having any kind of astringent that's going to kind of suck that stuff back together again is really, really excellent. It's also vulnerary. Vulnerary means that um, it stimulates the regrowth of new cells, which is really the only way that you can heal a wound, right? If you imagine a cut, there's a tear in your skin, um, and the only way to fix it is to fill it in with new healthy cells. Um, so any plant that is listed as a vulnerary, V-U-L-N-E-R-A-R-Y, 
vulnerary, any plant that is listed as a vulnerary will stimulate the growth of these cells. That's epithelial cells and endothelial cells. So cells that are on your skin and or that make up your skin and cells that make up your digestive tract. They're actually the same type of cell. And this is why all of these plants that we're going to talk about work just as well inside my mouth as they would work on a stomach ulcer, as they would work on a wound on my skin. Mm. So, so meadowsweet is vulnerary and it will stimulate the healing and make that process go much, much, much faster. And then also a nice thing about meadowsweet is that it has salicylates in it. And salicylates are compounds that get converted in your liver into acetosalicylic acid, which is a big, long, fancy name for aspirin. And that's great in terms of moderating pain, but, but really, meadowsweet has a form of salicylates that is a methyl salicylate. And things that have methyl compounds, chemical compounds that have methyl attached to them, when you see that, you can imagine that what it means is easy to absorb. Um, so this is why, for example, if you get a B12 supplement, you want the methylcobalamin instead of the cyanocobalamin because the methylcobalamin is much easier to absorb. There are some steps that normally happen in the liver that don't have to happen because they've already been done for you chemically, and you can just go ahead and absorb that and use it right away. And in the case of the methyl salicylate you get from Meadowsweet, it's also a much smaller molecule than, say... Um, there's a, another salicylate compound called salicin, which is found in willow bark, and that's much larger and much heavier. So um, that one is going to be uh, fixed in the plant matter and, and kind of heavy, but methyl salicylate will actually evaporate, and it lends the uh, wintergreen-like smell that you get a little touch of with meadowsweet and some to some extent with like birch bark and and then, of course, with uh, the herb wintergreen itself, there's a lot of it in there, so that contributes to the major scent of the plant. So anytime that we have something that is volatile, that can evaporate, obviously you want to make that tea with a lid on it so that you keep, you keep all of it. It doesn't just um, evaporate into the air. But it means that instead of drinking willow tea... Um, which you might be accustomed to doing for a headache or some other kind of pain, um, the meadowsweet is going to be way more fast acting and much more localized. I don't need meadowsweet to deal with pain that's like systemic or all through my body. I just need to deal with the pain that's right there in my mouth. So with that methyl salicylate action, I can um, have that pain management response right away. And in fact, what I do is I just have the tea warm and I take a sip and I just hold it in my mouth until I need to swallow or until I need to talk. That one usually happens first. (laughs) (laughs) And then I swallow it and I say whatever it is I have to say. And then I put another mouthful in my mouth and hold on to it until I have to say something again. And it's really, really effective. So the other one here on my list is goldenrod. Oh my goodness. And it's nice because meadowsweet is delicious. Goldenrod is delicious. Although I have to say that 
home harvested goldenrod tastes so much better than purchased goldenrod. Mm-hmm. It's it's like most plants. If you buy really good quality stuff, then it's good quality stuff, and you're good to go. But the goldenrod, I mean, even goldenrod that I've purchased from really small, tremendously amazing quality herb farms is nothing like going out and harvesting it myself. It, it has a honey flavor, and it's so good. So harvest it yourself. Goldenrod is a really easy plant to identify, um, and it's really ubiquitous. So I definitely recommend that. Um, but if, you know, right now it's spring in New England, so you can't go out and harvest any. You'll have to buy some. Yeah, we like to gather it in the, well, when it's flowering. In the, in the late, late, late summer, early fall. So goldenrod is another one of our vulnerary plants. Um, it's a, a really nice antiseptic plant. It is the Latin for goldenrod is solidago, which means to make whole. And you may have learned about goldenrod in terms of kidney support and al- seasonal allergy support. And that stuff is totally, yes, it is awesome, good, dead on, totally do that. But you may not have realized that goldenrod is a tremendous wound healing plant. And um, I also find that goldenrod really uplifts my spirits, especially when I feel like something is really drudgery, like you just have to soldier on and there's no way around it and no way under it. You just have to go through it, you know? Hmm. Um, So that extra mental, emotional, uplifting action is very, very helpful for me. And then, of course, self-heal is a really great option. Self-heal is, again, another vulnerary. It's a lymphatic stimulant as well, which isn't so much of an issue for this immediate topical thing, but... I'm a person who could always use a little bit of lymphatic stimulation. So it's kind of like a two birds with one um, bird feeder kind of of thing. Nice. Um, And, you know, self-heal, again, it's ubiquitous. It comes up fairly early in the spring. So depending on what part of the country you're in, you may actually already be seeing some self-heal coming up. Um. And just, again, really lovely, vulnerary, really lovely plant for helping to heal um, wounds in skin tissue or digestive tract tissue. So today when I was saying that this is what I wanted to talk about, Rin was like, oh, right, I was supposed to bring meadowsweet flowers home for you. And I was like, oh, don't worry, I've got some goldenrod, I've got some self-heal, but hey, in a pinch, we've got calendula and plantain. And... Remember, calendula and plantain are also both really vulnerary. We usually talk about them in terms of gut heal tea and improving gut health by helping to heal over irritations, abrasions, ulcerations in the guts and helping to heal any kind of leaky gut situation. But both calendula and plantain are awesome for just plain old wounds, whether they're on your skin or in your mouth or wherever. And even chamomile. Chamomile is a wonderfully potent wound healing herb, antiseptic herb. And 
Um, especially if you are following any kind of South American traditional herbalism, it's one of their most important wound healing plants. Um, and, you know, here we, we just have it in the, it's a stress buster sort of category, um, which it is, and it's awesome, but it's just, it's even, even chamomile will be really, really helpful. So two other things that I wanted to mention, and then I promise I'll stop talking. Um, one is that, uh, you know, even though the wound kind of pain is far more aggravating for me, every once in a while you do get sick of the bone pain. And kava is really helpful for that. Now, this was the first time ever that you, <laughs> that you were grateful for kava. Yes, I was going to say. No, wait, the second time. The second time ever. What was the first? The, the, the first time. The first time was when we, uh, you you had encountered some cannabis smoke and it had set off. Oh, your that's right. Allergy and uh, you were having trouble breathing and we didn't have any lobelia for reasons unknown. Yeah, that was bizarre. But you took like a half an ounce of kava tincture. That's and true. That was enough to release the constriction. Yeah. So that yeah. was the first time, and then the second, and then that was like three, four years ago. Oh, years and Five, years ago. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then. And then you started. To, you had that palate expander thing in mm-hmm. for the for the early stage of the braces work, and that was a lot of bone movement. Yeah, re restructuring going on in there. Yeah, so yeah, if you've met me ever, you probably know that I do not like kava. But then this, it was so effective, and suddenly I had to be like, oh, I like kava now. Um, now, the one thing about kava is that it's pretty handy in a tincture, and if you have a lot of abrasion in the mouth from the brackets or the wires, then that's not going to feel fantastic. But if you, like I, have any kind of palate expander device in there, then that doesn't really, there's not really any abrasion with that. There's just a lot of bone movement. So that was a, a really awesome um, friend then. And then I also just wanted to give a quick shout out to Ground Ivy Um, because certainly for me, but I think this is probably true for other people as well, um, moving all these bones around has meant some really weird sinus drainage, especially in my ears, um, which is what we want to have happen. Like a big part of the problem was that my my lower jawbone was impinging my eustachian tube. So we're trying to get my ears to drain better, but... But that has led to various points in this process where I'll have a few days of that weird congestion fluid in my ears noise that happens. And I I hate that noise. Um, But ground ivy really helps. Ground ivy is what I always worked with for my ear infections. It really moves the, the lymph in the ear, nose, and throat area. And... So I feel like as we're moving these bones around to help my eustachian tubes be able to drain better, having that um, lymphatic stimulation action is really helping old congested crud that's been in there for how, who knows how long to really drain itself out. It makes the whole process much more comfortable. Um, so that is my pile of braces support herbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've been uh, working on a whole class on this topic. Yes, yes. That will be coming probably this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stay tuned for that one. My orthodontist may even may even uh, stage a cameo. Yeah? Yeah. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah, that'll be really fun. Cool. 
cool. She's pretty awesome. Nice. Okay, so for me this week... Um, yeah, what you got going on this week? Yeah, I wanted to talk about a little bit of phytochemistry, so don't run away yet. Um, <laughs> I know don't that, be scared. Yeah. I know that this particular like uh, topic can sometimes feel intimidating or just maybe not as intriguing to, to folks who are, especially folks who are kind of new to herbalism, um, but it is useful to approach the world of herbs from this perspective sometimes, and um, what I wanted to talk about this week was actually a way that we try to understand constituents from the plant's point of view. And what the word constituent means in this context uh, a chemical that is found inside of the plant, and usually it means one that, that we understand to have some contribution to the medicinal action of the herb. So you've heard of lots of constituents. You've heard of caffeine. Um, you've... Let's see. Vitamin C. Sure, yeah. Um, you might have heard people talk about bioflavonoids in strawberries or blackberries or something like that. Salicylates in meadowsweet and willow. Yeah. Um so there are there are a few that are kind of general knowledge out there in the in the world. Um, nicotine and tobacco, for instance, right? That's a constituent of that plant. And then there are a, a whole bunch that you know, as an herbalist, you're going to start to hear about and learn about. You'll listen to people talk about you know barberry and golden seal and how there's this constituent in there called berberine, and you know there's a whole family or group of plants that all share that and have a, a lot of overlap in the way that they're applied. So. You know, you'll hear about them that way, and, and you can absorb a lot of, you know, useful information just sort of by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Learn the herb first, I would advise, and then start to dig into the chemistry. That's usually the best approach. Um, but one thing that I, I just wanted to talk about today was this idea that we can, in the, in the course of trying to understand what one of these constituents does, or how it does what it does in our body... Um, it can help if we stop a moment and say, well, what does it do in the plant or for the plant that produced it? So um, most of the constituents that we look at in terms of medicinal application are referred to as secondary metabolites. And so your first question is probably, where are the primary ones? <laughs> so um, primary metabolites would mean any, any chemical or element that's necessary to sustain the life of the plant. Um, things like proteins to be structural um, elements to, say, build up the, the cell walls of the plant or to be some enzymes that are necessary to the plant's metabolic function. Um, lipids or carbohydrates that the plant might use as a way to store energy. Um, uh, you know, basically sugar that it's going to use to continue to power its metabolism as it goes along. That's basically what a potato is. Yeah, right. And then, of course, um, uh, chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is necessary for almost all plants. You've got a couple of exceptions here and there, like your ghost pipe, right, mm-hmm. that doesn't use it. But most plants are going to use chlorophyll um, in order to convert sunlight into sugar. Um, so those are what's called primary metabolites. And then what, what it turns out to be the case is that um, the plant will first produce some glucose, which you might also know as blood sugar because it's the same molecule in your bloodstream. Uh, as it is in the the leaf of the plant. Um, But that's the first product of photosynthesis, and then it gets transformed into basically everything else that the plant produces. All of its other compounds are the result of metabolism going to work on glucose and converting it into other things. So they're called secondary metabolites. 
So these are considered not necessary for like basic life function of the plants, but they're definitely necessary in the context of the real world um, because these are generally doing something to increase the survival prospect of the plant, uh, to protect it from a predator or from a, a, a kind of exposure that it has to cope with, um, to make it more resilient, to improve its chance of uh, surviving long enough to grow seeds and pass them on and, and you know, produce the next generation. It sounds like you're kind of talking of, about an immune system. Yeah, it, absolutely. That's going to be, that's definitely going to be part of it. So um, the role in plants that these compounds are going to play, oftentimes we find out that it, it's kind of analogous uh, or has some, some symmetry with the way that they're going to function in the human body. Um, and this is probably best uh, understood uh, with a couple of examples. So if we look first at a group of compounds called carotenoids, um, if you hear the word carrot in there, then points for you, because that's exactly what's going on here, right? So carotenoids are these sort of yellowish, orange-colored uh, compounds, and if there's a lot of them in a, in a plant or in an herb or part of it, then it's going to have a yellow or orange color. So definitely carrots are going to have lots of carotenoids in there. Um, in the herb world, um, calendula is a really good example. Calendula has these beautiful yellow or sometimes really dark, rich, orange-colored flowers, and that's coming from the carotenoid content in there. Um, so in some cases, you can really see them very clearly. Um, but the truth is that most plants have at least a little bit of carotenoid content. Um, it's kind of a a general strategy that lots and lots of plants are going to use. Um, carotenoid's job in the plant is actually to protect it from sunburn. Um, <laughs> the fancy way to say it is that it's going to protect the plant from oxidative damage due to an excessive release of free radicals, which are these um, you know, oxidative kind of uh, compounds that are going to initiate inflammation. You've got those in your own body as well. We'll come to that in a moment. But there can be an excess release of those free radicals if there's overexposure to, um, to sunlight, to UV radiation. Basically what happens is that the sunlight keeps striking the plant and energizing the chlorophyll and starting that process. But if there's uh, too much, then it can start to overoxidize and kind of crisp up. So you've probably seen lots of plants that um, if they don't get watered enough or they just get too much direct sunlight for that species to handle well then they'll turn kind of like brown or yellow or there's like a bit of orange in, the, uh, in the, the color of the leaf there. You can also see carotenoids in a lot of trees when they go through their color change in the autumn. Um, when trees change color in the autumn, what's really happening is that the chlorophyll uh, is degrading. Like the plant has stopped producing new chlorophyll. What was there has, you know, done its thing, it's been used up, and now it fades away. And uh, you can see the other colors that were there the whole time. So if you see leaves that are red or yellow or brown or orange, that color was there the whole time. It's just that the green is more uh, dominant, um, particularly with our, uh, our eyes, our particular visual apparatus. Humans are really sensitive to shades of green. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that this goes back to our evolutionary history and our need to be able to distinguish between different kinds of leaf. You know, if you can look at a whole field of green and you can distinguish that one shade, that means over there there's a wild sage plant growing, that's useful, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you, you may have also seen this in the context of like 
somebody giving a PowerPoint presentation and using one of those laser pointers that's green instead of red. I don't know if you noticed, but those are often a lot easier to follow and to see because our eyes are much more sensitive to that green light than they are to red. Anyway, um, so carotenoids are in there. They're protecting the plant from, from sunburn, essentially. Um, and when we eat carotenoids in large amounts, then it can actually perform the same function for us. Um, so at normal dietary amounts, carotenoids are going to have a kind of an antioxidant effect. They're going to protect us from excessive, um, you know, inflammatory compounds that are, you know, present in our bloodstream or in our body. Um, this is one of the major reasons why, uh, foods and herbs that are rich in carotenoids are going to have an anti-cancer activity. Um, cancers produce a lot of oxidative compounds and a lot of stress on, uh, that tissue in the surrounding area. So if we can calm down that fire, keep it contained, our body's better able to respond to the actual tumor. Um, you can also, if you eat lots and lots of carrots, you can start to turn yourself a little bit orange. Um, and that's basically the body is uh, storing or diverting the, the extra carotenoids into the skin layer. Um, so you can find some pictures of uh, people who just kind of ate nothing but carrots for a month and turned their skin really orange. Um, along the way, they would actually become a lot more resistant to, uh, to sun exposure. Um, with this and with or a lot of... damage from sun exposure. Right, yeah, right, yeah, with damage from it. Um, with this and with actually a lot of other plant compounds, they sort of function as a kind of an internal sunscreen. Um, your body will place these antioxidants into the skin layer, um, and then if you get exposed to too much sunlight and your skin would normally start to crisp up or burn, um, then this protects you from that. So just another reason to eat lots of colorful veggies. That's really cool. Yeah. So there, that's a pretty direct kind of a correlation between what happens in the plant and what happens in people. Um, another example we could look at would be tannins. So there's a bunch of tannins in the plants that Katya was talking about earlier. Um, in the, the willow, the meadowsweet, goldenrod, cellfield, these all have some tannin content to them. Tannins have always been so interesting to me because if you look in the old books, it's very clear that they were prizing tannins not just plants with tannins coincidentally but specifically tannin content and um you're probably just about to say that tannins are astringent and uh, so sorry i just um, stole your thunder but i always felt like there's got to be more than just the you know sucking up action going on because if it was just that i mean that's pretty great But if it was just that, then they wouldn't be writing so, so much about everything that they're doing to to get as many tannins as possible. And there has to be more to it. Yeah, and that that would include strategies like you go to an oak tree and you can harvest the oak bark. That's got plenty of tannins in it. But if you find what's called an oak gall, um, that's actually like a, a place where the tree was wounded or there was an infestation or something. And it produces this mass that's just like super saturated with the oak tannins um, as, a, as a defense mechanism, as a response to that, to that injury or threat. Um, and those would be harvested uh, by herbalists and they would use those for, for, their, um, for their remedies, you know, for something where they need a really strong tannic effect to tighten things up and draw them together. So um, again, if we were to maybe look at what these do for the plants, tannins on, uh, on one level, they're antimicrobial. They will prevent uh, the growth of fungi and bacteria and other kinds of microbial threat 
um, from infecting that tree. Sometimes it takes us a minute to recognize that plants can get sick too, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that they can, they can get a cut and they can get chewed on by somebody and that can get infected and they could get sick and that could be a real problem. So they need to have a way to respond just like, just like we do. Um, so if you want to consider it as part of the plant's immune defenses, that's fine. Um, they're going to have an antimicrobial effect. We can also think about tannins as lending some structure or some kind of a barrier or a cohesion effect to the to the plant. I think about this, I think about the the willow trees that like to grow with their roots right into the into the pond or into a mm. stream, right? So they're they're totally saturated and if they didn't have all of the tannin content in their bark and in their tissues, then they would get spongy and soggy and they would drown or they you know they wouldn't be able to to sustain that kind of you know standing in the water uh way of being in the world um so that kind of helps them to to keep that tissue integrity and you know both of those are ways that we can work with tannins in humans we can uh use a a wound wash again with oak bark willow bark or some other strong tannin heavy uh, preparation for when you have a fresh wound and you want to um, prevent infection in there. It also helps to knit it back together a little bit, kind of draw the the tissue um, a little closer together so that things can start to heal up again. It's a very different kind of a wound healing aspect than the, the vulneraries that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll use astringent herbs or tannin-containing herbs in smaller doses when we want to tighten up or tonify some mucous membranes. So, you know, golden seal is famous for doing this in your the mucous membranes in your sinuses, We'll often work with blackberry root for people that are having a lax, kind of swampy, boggy mucous membrane down in their intestines and getting diarrhea from that. You give bark, uh, blackberry root preparations, and that tightens that tissue up. It gives it that integrity again. Um, so, you know, again, we're seeing these correlations between what happens in the plant and what happens in people. Um, maybe just one more example, um, and this one's going to be a little more general, um, but we can talk about alkaloids. So this is a very large and complicated category of herbal constituents. Um, It's defined in a bunch of different ways, most of which don't really agree with each other. Um, (laughs) I was quite surprised when I started researching phytochemistry about how much fogginess there is here. You know, I sort of pictured that there would be the standard taxonomy of all of the herbal constituent categories and where they fit and all of this stuff, but no, there's there's lots of different ways to define it. one definition about alkaloids that people will use a lot, especially in regards to herbal medicine, actually is just about how they affect the body. Alkaloids tend to have very strong effects on human physiology, and those are usually mediated through um, a, a direct impact on the nervous system. You can think again about, say, two very famous uh, alkaloids like caffeine and nicotine. Um, uh, again, in the plant, um, both of these um, are going to be... Uh, anti-herbivore kind of agents. They're going to... Like, don't eat me? Yeah, they're going to discourage critters from coming along and chewing on them. Um, That did not work out well for the caffeine-containing plants. Right, yeah. Well, we we came (laughs) along. And I mean, you know, the story around, around like, coffee, for instance, is that a a goat herd, uh, once upon a time in Ethiopia, observed his his goats chewing on the coffee plant, and then they would frolic about. And he thought, oh, that must be pretty good. So, so he tried it as well. But that's just goats for you, because they'll, they'll eat anything. <laughs> you know? But like other, other little creature, creatures um, aren't so keen on eating coffee, or, or certainly tobacco, which well, is I can understand like a bunny 
Yeah. Like, they would not want to do that. The bunny doesn't need any more stimulation. No. <laughs> no, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus, you know, a lot of the... animals. Yeah. And a lot of the alkaloids tend to have a bitter flavor to them anyway, so that's kind of speaking to the mammals among us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe you don't want to chow down on this too much. Um, but yeah, so they have that effect. Uh, they're also... Um, caffeine in particular, anyway, we can say is an antifungal agent. Um, it protects the coffee plant or, you know, other caffeine-containing herbs from the growth of a, of a pathogenic fungus. Um, one place that this actually kind of trickles down to human experience is that um, decaf coffee is actually a lot more prone to developing, like, a mold and a, and a mycotoxin content. Um, so I don't want to scare anybody, but, like, you know... Um, uh, if you're going to be storing coffee for a long time or if it's been sitting <laughs> on your shelf for a while, then uh, better for that to have a little caffeine in there because that is, in fact, uh, preventing mold and, and other fungi from growing in your in your bag of coffee. Um, hopefully that's not a problem for you, but hey, just in case. Store it uh, in the fridge. Yeah, good idea. Um, yeah, so, uh, so, you know, these alkaloids, they're going to... They're going to usually have that kind of effect. And in our bodies, the, the effect here is a little bit different. So I, I included this as an example to say that it doesn't always have a one-to-one -one correlation. Um, but it is something that we find useful to at least ask, you know, at least to wonder. If someone starts talking about this or that compound or that chemical or whatever, before you leap into, you know, looking for studies about its effects on human tissue, um, try to find what we understand about how this, how this works for the plant. Um, we may also wonder, like, why would there be such, such similarity or such crossover? Um, part of it is because, you know, for some of these, these are things that are happening kind of out there on the surface. You know, if you look at your tannins, um, that's sort of just a, a direct effect. You know, the, the tannins getting exposed to uh, a pathogen or something like that, they're going to have a direct impact there. Um, but for most of these, like say your, your carotenoids serving as internal antioxidant or UV defense, um, that's a little less, a little less obvious maybe. Um, one thing we can say is that uh, there's this long history of coevolution between uh, plants and animals like us. Once upon a time, we all had a common ancestor, and a lot of the tricks of metabolism like how to make a cell, how to, <laughs> how to be an alive thing in the world. <laughs> you know, many of those, those uh, basic fundamental tricks of metabolism were originated a very long time ago, back when everybody was a single-celled critter, and we were all swimming around eating each other and sharing ideas that way. Um, Plus, we all have the same problems to solve. Right. If, whether you're a plant or a bunny or a human or whatever else, you have to get some food. And you have to make some energy, and you have to have some babies, and, you know, these are things that we all have to do, and we've solved those problems in different ways, but not entirely different ways. Yeah. So, you know, and of course, our, our it didn't stop there. We, we co-evolved from that moment forward, right? So people have been eating plants in large quantities for all of our whole history as a species up until fairly recently. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so there's that, that long kind of dance or, or conversation uh, between us that way. Like an expectation. Yeah. And that makes me think of Michael Pollan's work, um, The Botany of Desire. Right. Like our bodies expect 
to receive vitamin C from the environment, i.e. from eating a lot of plants. A cat's body doesn't expect that. A cat's body produces its own vitamin C because they're carnivores. But a human body expects to receive vitamin C from the environment. But that expectation goes two ways. And the plants also expect certain things from their relationship with us because we, we co-evolved. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So, you know, I'm not in any stretch alone in this, but my favorite example and the favorite example of lots of herbalists about this kind of um, symmetry between plant and human physiology has to do with chlorophyll and hemoglobin. So chlorophyll, of course, is what allows plants to photosynthesize, to convert sunlight into sugar and, you know, begin their uh, whole chain of metabolic processes. Hemoglobin is uh, what makes your blood red. Um, it's a molecule that carries oxygen around your body. So that's uh, really critical for you being yeah. alive. <laughs> um, and it turns out that chlorophyll and hemoglobin have a very similar molecular structure. Uh, you can check out a, a molecular diagram of each of these uh, compounds, and you'll see that they're almost an exact mirror image of each other. The major difference being that in hemoglobin, there's an iron atom at the center, um, kind of like suspended between these uh, these bonds. It's sort of like floating in space in between these two claws that hold it. And in the chlorophyll, um, it's a magnesium atom uh, in, in basically the same place. So It's funny. It's a mineral in both cases. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That sort of like fundamental structuring earth elements down there yeah. at the base of everything. So... Um, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, we have red blood, plants have green blood, but it's pretty much the same thing. And uh, we found different ways to build the rest of our metabolism and our, our life and our vitality all around that. You know, that kind of challenges the whole idea of mineral, animal, vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Given that the like base form of that molecule is a mineral for everyone. Yeah. Maybe we're just all mineral. <laughs> Yeah, dancing earth, talking to itself. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, so that's what I've been thinking about lately. I um, hope that was interesting. And uh, stay tuned. We'll have more phytochemical explorations for you in future podcasts. Yeah. All right. So um, some other announcements. Uh, let's see. Today, today is the 30th of March? It is. Wow, how's that happen? Friday, March 30th. Yeah. Hey, that means that it is the kickoff of the new Yoga and Herbs program with Claire Moore. Um, so if you're here local in Boston, and if you love yoga, and if you love herbs, then you definitely need to check this out. It's at 6.15 Friday evenings. Um, it's just $10, and it's drop-in, so come whenever you want. Bring a mat if you have one. If you don't, don't worry, we have some. And um, Claire is just an awesome yoga teacher. She's an awesome herbalism teacher. We absolutely love her and we're really excited that she's going to be doing this. Yeah. So go do some yoga in an herb school. How much better can it get than that? Yeah, it's, it a, it's a great combo. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, also, even though all of our um, extended uh, programs for herbal training here in Boston are in progress for the year, you don't have to wait until next year to study with us. You can enroll in our online programs anytime you want to. So go ahead and check those out at our website, commonwealthherbs.com. Yay! And we'll see you next week. Yeah. I think that's it. 
Bye, guys. Bye.